Good morning, this, uh, this Shabbos we have the privilege yet again of reading a double Parsha, Bahar and Bechukosai. We'll uh, do as we always do, a brief overview of the two Parshios and then delve into specific Psukim. Parshas Bahar. Parshas Bahar begins with a section dedicated to the concept of Shemitah. Of course, the famous opening, Bahar Sinai Lemor. I think I've... Uh, I've repeated this, this before. I heard from Rabbi J.J. Schechter, who was once in Israel, said he was once watching it uh, on Israeli TV, an episode of the old show, Kojak, I think it was. Yes. And his sidekick, I don't know what his name was, said to Kojak, what does this have to do with uh, the price of tea in China? And on the uh, bottom of the screen, in the Hebrew Subtitle. subtitles, it said, Ma inyan shmita itzel har sinai. <laughs> That was the translation of what does this have to do with the price of tea in China. So, of course, uh, that's what the, the uh, parasha begins. What, what in the world does uh, one thing have to do with the other? Shemitah, Mayan, Shemitah, Itzel, Har Sinai. Why is Shemitah introduced with Hashem spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai? All mitzvahs were given at Har Sinai. Why Shemitah specifically? Not our topic for today. So, six years we have an agricultural cycle. In each of those years, there's different tithes and gifts and so on that are selected. The seventh year, the land lays fallow. The farmer concentrates on renewing his sense of emunah. The Sefer HaChinuch understands Shemitah is an exercise in emunah. You can imagine if we were all forced to take a sabbatical every seven years. In the seventh year, you would have to have saved up enough money or you would have to have a certain sense of faith that the year would work out okay even though you weren't actively working and trying to seek that income. So the ability to... And, and there's a big discussion when it comes to Shemitah among the Rishonim. Is the emphasis of Shemitah, is the sabbatical year, is the goal to allow the land to regenerate? Or is the goal to allow the owner to regenerate? And of course the answer is both, but different mafarshim, different commentators stress different components. Is it an environmental mitzvah? Is it a function of Mother Earth? How we treat the land, respecting the land? Which of course it is. Or is the main emphasis the farmer? <clears throat> that six years the farmer is consumed by his crop, by its produce, by nourishing and nurturing his field, her field. In the seventh year they take a step back and realize it's more to life. Their identity is not being a farmer, their identity is being being an Evid Hashem. So they dedicate a sabbatical year to learn, to grow, to reflect, to introspect, and, uh, and therefore the sabbatical is a regeneration, it's a notion of, of rebirth and renewal for the farmer. So that's a big discussion here. Every seven years, we then have the 50th year, which is the Yovel year, the Jubilee year. We then have the Psukim telling us what happens if these laws are not absor- uh, observed, which are the verses that we're going to study together this morning. We have the laws of the redemption of the land, what happens if a person loses their own land, redeeming it back on their behalf, we have the idea of the poor person and, and redeeming it. The closest relatives have to step in to make sure that they don't descend into absolute uh, poverty, but, uh, but they're protected. We have the halachas of the cities of the Levium. Very interesting. This is the origin of the community kolo. The Levium are to play the role. They are the tribe that when the Jewish people conquer Israel, the opening of the book of Yoshua, when the Jews come into uh, Eretz Yisrael and they conquer and divide the land, as was prescribed in the Torah, one tribe does not get land. And that is the tribe of Levi. Mm-hmm. Instead, what do they get? Cities within everyone else's land. Why are they given cities within everyone else's land? Why are they integrated into the other tribes rather than being isolated, having their tribe of the, uh, and land of their own as the other tribes have? Because the Levium are to be the role models. They are to be the teachers. That's the role of priests. Priests are the teachers... The role models, the source of inspiration, the clergy for everyone else. By interspersing them and integrating them into the greater community, you set them up to be those teachers. So here's the question. When they gave you land, 
when they entered Israel, it wasn't a matter of how many acres do I get and does it get a golf course view because I want to build my home with seven garages. The land was your livelihood. The land was what sustained you. You had land which you then worked and that's how you lived. So if you weren't giving land, the Levim say, well, that's nice that we're given cities. That helps. But how are we supposed to sustain ourselves if we don't have land to work, to nurture, and to harvest? And the answer is, that's where the tithes come in. The community is obligated to support the Levium. Since the Levium forfeit a meaningful salary to position themselves to be the teachers of the community, the community is responsible, bless you, to support them. And the Ramam describes this explicitly as the Mephoshimir and the Pesukim. This is the role of the Levium. The Levium are the original community kolel. The community supports a group who are designed to, are designated to teach and to inspire. Torah then goes on to talk about preventing poverty. When you see your brother beginning to sink, hold him up, strengthen him. So you don't wait till he's poor and on Tom Cheshavis. You catch him before he falls. It's much harder to lift somebody up off the floor than it is to catch them when they're falling. So the same is true spiritually and the same is true financially. Uh, the prohibition of interest. Why are we not allowed to end lend with interest? I'll tell you very quickly. Why are we not allowed to lend with interest? It's very uh, confusing. I think we spoke about this last year in the Parsha class. If lending with interest is categorically wrong, is morally or ethically wrong, then why are we allowed to lend with interest to a non-Jew? And if lending with interest is not immoral or unethical, why are we not allowed to lend with interest to a Jew? Why the distinction between the Jew and the non-Jew when it comes to lending with interest? So now clearly lending with interest is moral. There's nothing immoral about it. There is a time value to money. Money has a, a value to it because of interest and cost of living and so on and so forth. Money has a time value to it. So that's why when you borrow money from a bank, they charge you interest because it costs money for them to relinquish their a- equity, their, their, uh, their assets. Money has a time value. So it makes sense that if somebody has my money, therefore preventing my use of that money for a period of time and preventing my making money from that money, that when they give me back my money, they also pay me back a certain level of interest. It's absolutely moral and ethical. And if it's moral and ethical and permissible to a non-Jew, why then is it prohibited to a Jew? And the answer, say for Achinach, others right, is as follows. Because if your neighbor comes, knocks on your door and says, can I borrow some money? Then if you're a gracious, kind person, you'll say, sure, but here's what I was making in the bank, so at least pay me that interest rate. But if your brother which won't be a big stretch for them these days. If your brother knocks on your door and says, hey bro, I'm short some money, some cash, could you help me? You'd be a real lowlife if you charge your own brother, your own son or daughter, your mother or father interest. If your immediate nuclear family needs money, and I'm not talking about it's an investment, I'm not talking about it's long term, I'm not talking about they need money. And you say, sure, you could borrow you know, $200 to pay the electric bill, but I want you to pay me back $210 when you have the money. What kind of a father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter would you be? We, we all can intuitively understand that you don't charge interest to family, even though it's completely ethical, and you would charge interest to a neighbor you don't know, or to a stranger, or maybe even to a distant cousin who's called on you. So the Torah in this prohibition of charging interest is trying to cultivate within us a sense that the Jewish people are our nuclear family. There's nothing unethical or moral with charging interest. Just see every Jew as your brother or sister and don't do it. The same way you wouldn't do it to your immediate family. So the whole institution of a prohibition of charging interest is not an ethical law, 
because otherwise you wouldn't be able to charge interest to a non-Jew. It is designed to cultivate a sense of family among the Jewish people. Okay? Let's keep going. Quickly. No, hold on. Hold, hold, hold the questions. Hold the questions till the end if you don't mind. I will leave time for questions. Write them down. Um, next we have the concept of the Jewish slave and going free. Fine. Then Bechukosai, which is easy to summarize because it is the miracle of a blessing and a curse. We have the Tochacha, the great admonition and rebuke. The Torah's graphic description of what happens to those who are not adherent and obedient and observant of God's will. A horrific description. Is it meant to be taken literally? Is it meant to be taken figuratively? Did it occur? Has it yet to occur? The famous story of the Kleisenberger Rebbe, in whose a survivor of the Holocaust who lost his wife and 11 children, in whose Shtibol the Tochacha was being read, as is our custom to read it quietly in an undertone because its message is so harsh and almost unbearable. And the Kleisenberger Rebbe kept yelling in Yiddish, louder, louder. And the Balkore went a little louder and he said, no, louder. And louder. And after Davinim, they came up to him and said, What gives? I don't know how you say what gives in Yiddish. But they said, What gives? And the Minak is to read it in an undertone. What, why did the Rebbe announce to the Balkari to read it? And the Klesenberger Rebbe said, We have nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't need to be whispered. We'd live through it. We've experienced the Tochacha. Let Hashem hear it out loud. So he commanded it be read out loud. Very, very harsh. That's Parshas Bichu Kosai. Of course, we also have the Tochacha. Where else? Kisavo uh, and, and Sefer Dvarim. And of course, it's an important exercise to compare and contrast the Tochacha the way it appears early, the Tochacha the way it is recounted in the book of Dvarim. Then we have the gifts to the Beis HaMikdash, the uh, Halachas of uh, Erchen, Erkecha, Nefashos, Lashem, Sanctification, redemption of animals, houses and fields, the second tithe, all the different systems of the tithes. And that is an overview of the parshios. Okay, the Pesukim I want to investigate a little bit together. Perak Chafhei, chapter 25, verse 14, Pasuk Yod Dalad, coinciding or corresponding with Sheni in Parshas Behar. Page 698 in the Stone Chumash. 698 in the Stone Chumash. Okay, so again, the context here is the Torah introduced us to the concept of Shemitah every seven years, to the concept of the Yovel, the Jubilee, every 49 years. The 50th year is Yovel. And in that context, the Torah now tells us, karu mimchar la'amisecha, O kano miyad amisecha, al tonu ish es achiv. When you make a sale to your brother, you make a purchase from his hand, do not al tonu, this is the prohibition of O na'ah, you're not allowed to violate the prohibition of Ona'a. Al-Tonu. Art scroll translates the words Tonu as to aggrieve. Don't aggravate. But Al-Tonu doesn't just mean to aggravate, meaning to handle. Don't handle, don't aggravate, don't be a, a, a difficult. But it means something halachic. Look at Rashi. Al-Tonu means Zu Ona'as Mamun. This is the prohibition of Ona'as Mamun. In Parshas Kedoshim, we already had a reference to it earlier, that there is a prohibition of Ona'a. Ona'a means you're only allowed to charge a fair market value. The Torah has a prohibition against extortion, exorbitant sums, exorbitant fees. One is only allowed to charge a fair market value. In fact, you have a 40th or a 50th or a 60th. It depends how much over you are. If it's a certain amount over, 
then it's negligible. If it's a certain amount over, it's forgiven. If it's a certain amount over, I'm sorry, a certain amount over, then it has to be returned. And if it's a certain amount over, then the entire sale is null and void. So if I go and I buy a stereo, they used to have things called stereo systems. Uh, if I go and I buy a car, and I find out afterwards that I was just ripped off, I was charged a significant amount more than the actual fair market value. So if it was a 40th more, so then, I think my percentages are right. I haven't learned in a long time, the fifth parak of Bab Metziah, but Ezer Neshech. The, uh, if, it's, if it's that amount more, so then it's negligible. It was the wrong thing to do, but it's, it's uh, included in the sale. If it's above that more, then the seller has to return that amount that they charged beyond the fair market value. And if it's the third category, the maximum amount, amount, amount more, then the entire sale is null and void. So that even if the seller wants to come to me and say, look, I'll return to you the difference, but we made a sale, the deal is a deal. I say, the deal is a deal, no way. The fact that you ripped me off at that percentage more than the fair market value, the Torah says the entire sale is null and void and is to be treated as such. So this is, the Rashi says, a reference to that prohibition. The Torah here is referencing that when there is a sale, there's a prohibition to cheat anyone in business. Cheating being described as charging more than the fair market value. Now this is a halacha that only applies to movable objects, to metaltalin, does not apply to karka. Real estate does not have a notion of a fair market value. Very interesting. Where do we learn that from? The Gemara derives that from Sukkim themselves. Our Pasuk says, O kano miyad amisecha. Our Pasuk, the Gemara learns. Our Pasuk says, that if you buy something from the hand of your friend, from the hand, you don't buy real estate from a hand. You buy a movable object from a hand. What the Torah refers to as metaltalin, movable objects. Karka, real estate, immovable object, you can't transfer from the hand, and it's not therefore susceptible to the laws of Onah. Does that mean you could cheat? You could be unfair? No, it means that the Torah views, and this is fascinating, beyond the scope of our time, real estate has a whole other set of rules in the Torah. Karka and metaltalin. Because Torah law, Jewish law, views real estate differently. Real estate's value is relative. Right? Movable objects' value can be labeled with a certain absolute value. There's a going rate. And the going rate... Now, what if it, to me, it means more, I want it so badly, I'm willing to pay more? That we don't mean. You know, the fact that there's an a outlier of a specific individual who so badly wants that gadget that they're willing to pay more, that's an outlier. But you can clearly define when it comes to a movable object the fair market value, more or less. You Google it, you see the different websites that come up, what they're selling it for, even though Amazon will have a different price than Best Buy, which has a different price than what you can get it for on eBay, but you get a relative uh, average, median, of what you could buy it for, that's the fair market value. But real estate, there's no fair market value. Real estate is so subjective that it depends on the prospective buyer. Do they love the location? Now understand, not only do they love the location because of a golf course view, but understand that if I have the adjacent piece of property, then this piece of property is a different value to me than it does to some guy who's moving in from another neighborhood. If you own the adjacent uh, parcel of land, which, by the way, if you're a farmer, it's even more so, has greater value. Because you reduce your cost, your level of efficiency is so great if your parcels of land are next to each other, you can harvest those two fields at a much lower cost than it would cost you to harvest two fields that have some field in between the two. Which is why, by the way, the Torah tells us that when you're selling the field, if the person who has the adjacent field is one of the prospective buyers, you should sell it to them. 
all else being equal, willing to pay the same price, all else being equal, you should all else being equal, you should sell it to them. In fact, if you don't, we call that kofen la midastom. It's midastom. You are displaying the same um, you are displaying the same character trait as the people of Stom. Um, the same unethical behavior to be unwilling to sell it if all else is equal to someone because it has more, more value to them. You have similar laws when it comes to inheritance where one son already owns a parcel of land next to the father and now they're going to divide up the father's property in three. So give the third that's adjacent to the son, to the son who has the adjacent land, give him that third. Don't give him the third that there's going to be a break between the land. So you have these, these notions. So here you have the prohibition of Ona'a. But you see the Torah and Chazal view real estate differently, just hold the question, view real estate as having relative value, whereas movable objects have more of an absolute value that can be determined. Therefore, they are susceptible to the laws of Ona'a. Okay. There's a lot more to say about this, but it's not really our subject for today. So continuing. Pasuk Tes Vav. According to the number of years of the of Yovel shall you buy from your fellow. Meaning, according to the number of crop years shall he sell you. According to the greater number of years shall you increase the price. According to the lesser number of years shall you decrease its price. For he's selling you the number of crops. The Jewish view of real estate is also very different in the following sense. When you're buying land in Boca Raton, there's an actual transfer of deed. If I buy the land, I own the land outright. It's mine, it's irreversible, nobody could take it away from me without my selling it, gifting it, inheriting it, a change of of uh, transfer of deed. But it's mine. When you buy land in Israel, you by definition never own the land. It's very powerful. I'm not, I'm not talking about modern Israel. I'm talking about halacha. I'm talking about in biblical Israel. It is never owned by the person. What do you own? No. You own the rights to use the land and the produce produced by the land. So therefore, how do you determine the rate, says the Torah, Well, if there are... And, and how, who really owns the land? First of all, who really owns the land is Hashem. But who owns the title of the land is the family to whom it's been... It's been, it's, been, it's been divided. When they came into Israel, they divided according to the tribes, and further the tribes divided according to families, they own the deed. So when someone comes to whatever family and says, I'd like to buy the land, I come to the Pell's family and I say, Danny, I'd like to negotiate, I want to buy your house. I'm not really buying your property, five acres. What I'm buying is the opportunity to use your property to produce until when... The Torah had said that with Yovel, all property reverses to the ancestral ownership. So therefore, with Yovel, I leave Danny's land and Danny comes back to his land. So it's a pretty lousy deal on my side. Unless I understand and realize that I was never really buying... Imagine if every 50 years, everyone had to vacate their houses and it goes back to whoever the previous owner of the house was. So that would, that would change the whole real estate market dramatically. But in the Torah's view, I was never buying Danny's property. What I was buying was the right of the use of Danny's property until Yovel. Which means what determines the price? 
how far off we are from Yovel. So if, if last year was Yovel, so I've got 49 years until the next Yovel, I'm going to pray a premium. If Yovel is three years from now, I'm going to get a bargain. And that's what the Torah is saying. Bimispar shanim, according to the number of years of Yovel, that's what determines the price. Lefi rov shanim, if there are many years, tarbeh miknaso, it's going to increase it. Lefi mot shanim, if there's few years, tamit miknaso, it's going to lessen the price. Kimispar tzvosu mocher lach, because what are you selling? Not the land. You're selling the years of use. Use. The years of how much produce you can get. And this is how Rashi explains. Look at Rashi Pasuk Tezvav. This is how you understand the Mikra. And what's the connection now you'll say between the last Pasuk we just read and this Pasuk? In the last Pasuk we talked about the prohibition of Ona'a. You're not allowed to charge exorbitant sums or fees. You're not allowed to extort. You can't charge more than the going rate. And now we go right into this notion of a fluctuating rate based on the amount of years left because you're paying for usage, not for the actual land. So Rashi says, here's what it means. When you sell or buy land, duh, no. You can't buy the land in a vacuum because you're not really buying the land. You have to know how many years are left. The set, the price is set by how many years there are. The land's going back in the Jubilee year. If there are a few years, and you're selling it for many dollars, so you're taking advantage of an unknowing person. So if somebody comes to buy your land, who Rabbi Brody brought in through his outreach program, they're not familiar with a concept called Yovel. Yovel's taking place in a year and a half. And you say, they say, uh, how much is the land? You say, my land, this is prime property. I live right next door to the shul. Uh, Three million. They say, so property is unbelievable. They don't realize they're only going to live there in a year and a half. And guess what? The rabbi is going to give a sermon in a year and a half that says, you know, musical chairs, don't forget everyone, put in the weekly activity sheet this week, we all switch houses. The guy's going to go, what, what, what? Switch out, what? I just paid three million dollars. Hare nis'ane lokeach. That's a form of ona'a. It's a form of extortion. And what happens? The opposite happens. You take advantage in the opposite way. You go to somebody and you say, um, you know, there's a concept called Yovel, I'm going to have to give you the land back anyway. So you know what? I'm not willing to pay you what you want. I'll pay you 10% of what you want because you're going to get your land back. I don't really get to own it. But that person is unknowing. They don't realize that there's only... I'm sorry, they don't realize that there's 45 years left till the next Yovel. So you're going to get 45 years of crop and you're paying something small. That's the reverse Ona'a. That's that now the lokeach, the borrower taking advantage. And that's what Rashi is explaining, the flow of the psukim. Why the Torah say lo sonu, instructing us not to extort our fellow man in business practices? What in the world does that have to do with Yovel? And the answer is, a very conniving person could leverage Yovel on an unsuspecting person by either paying, by either paying very little but getting a lot of crop, or paying, uh, or, or the or the seller receiving a lot for very little use, and so on.
Rabbis learn from here that the minimum amount of time before you redeem a property, in other words, kick someone off and take it back, is two years. To allow a person to buy the use of a property and have them be there less than two years would be so grossly unfair that the rabbis specifically uh, set out that you can't redeem a property and kick someone off. You can't foreclose, so to say, and, uh, what's it called? Evict somebody without there having been there a minimum of two years. Even if they were able to get three crops out of the two years, he sold it when the stalks were fully grown about to be harvested. And so on and so forth. In other words, two years could get three crops depending on how you calculate the two years. So you'll say, well, they got their three crops, I'm going to evict them in under two years. Says Rashi, no. Chazal said, you can't evict without a person having a minimum of two years because that's part of the notion of honesty in business, how it relates to Yovel. Now the Torah, strangely, here we go, says again. By the way, let's just point out the Rashbam, Shul B'Meir, Tezayin, says, Ki mispar tvuos. The Rashbam is focusing, emphasizing the word mispar, number. Sha'ar ha-yovel humocher l'cha v'lo guf ha-karka. The buyer needs to know that this is not a real estate transaction. When it comes to land in Israel, in a Yovel site, we don't have Yovel today. We still have Shemitah, but we don't really have Yovel today. So today there is real deed transfer and property and so on and so forth, title taken to property. But in the Yovel system, when there was Yovel, so the borrower, the, the buyer needs to know, it needs to be communicated, articulated explicitly. There's no such thing in Israel in a Yovel system of actual real estate transaction. You're never selling property, you're selling usage. You're selling the right. And that's what the Rashbam says. Ki mespar min You're selling usage fakarka, and not the real estate itself. Okay. After Yovel? Yeah, you could buy the next 49 years of usage. You'll have to renegotiate. Now you're going to pay a premium. Right? Now, no, it's because that's the exact point. You're not paying a flat fee for a real estate transaction. You're paying a usage fee for a distinct period of time, which will conclude with Yovel. The beginning time is fluctuates, depending on when you negotiate. But the end time is set in stone. It's essentially a land lease. Right. There's actually no real estate transaction. It's essentially a land lease. Why is there a prohibition on the buyer? Prohibition should only be on the seller. Well, the prohibition's on the buyer also because the buyer could be taking advantage of a seller by paying very little when the truth is there's many years left. So there could be 49 years left and he's going to say, this is, this is not even a sale. This is a lease. For a lease, I'll only pay you this small amount. And the unknowing seller doesn't realize that he's given away 49 crops. 49 years of crop for that small it's amount. So when, no, no, when no. Did it 15 start now years with... ago, we received a letter oh, from Karen Kayemet because my parents had an apartment. The land didn't belong to them. So they, and they received an But that's not, that's not part of the Yovel cycle. No, no, no. no that has nothing to do with Yovel. Well, because... The Jubilee year, because it reset everything. Why? The Torah felt 
strongly, this is another subject not ours for today, but the Torah felt strongly in the concept of not, not segregation in the negative term that we use, but the notion that Danny Gordis has a fantastic talk on this and he's written extensively on it. Right? What's, what's happening, I don't want to deviate too far, the, the new European model, which we're actually watching disintegrate before our eyes, particularly beginning with Greece, but the European model of blending, losing individual identity, universal identity, will have one currency and one language and one train system and one everything. The Torah was very against that. The Torah understood that distinct peoples need to have distinct identities with distinct cultures and allow them to flourish and thrive and that's what builds the beauty of the spectrum, the colors of the rainbow, the, the magnificent, uh, all the different metaphors you could give, right? Like I say, Danny Gordis has a beautiful discussion about this. He, he tries to describe that that's part of the, Europe's hatred of Israel, is that Israel refuses to lose its identity and blend into the Europeans. They want to have a distinct identity, particular, a particularistic identity, a Jewish identity, and, and that's part of why Europe... Uh, so much of it hates Israel. Like I say, it's a brilliant analysis on his part. So, I don't remember him referencing this, but the Torah clearly understands the notion of individualized identity. You see it throughout Tanakh, because tribes have their own sections of the land. And every Yovel would reset what happens when people marry? What happens when ancestral lands gets sold? Leases are set and so on. So every 50th year there's a reset button to get everything back to the working order of divided lands. Does that mean that we believe in segregation in the sense that tribes shouldn't be marrying one another and integrating with one another and so on? Of course not. There were times in Jewish history, there were times in Jewish history where we had this challenge. There were times where there was civil war between tribes. There were times where it was declared that nobody would marry someone. Pilegesh Begiva, after the episode of Pilegesh Begiva, for example. Um, so uh, there were episodes in our history, but for the most part, the Torah understood in a par- it was a particular, I don't know if that's a word, particularistic, individualistic, but rather than the universal. Um, so that's what's going on over here. Okay, continuing. The, the Orachayim HaKadosh brings up something interesting in the Pasuk nobody asked. I don't want to get into his long answer that's technical, but he points out, if you look in Pasuk Tezvav, verse 15, According to the number of years after Yovel, you should buy. He asks, it should say, Lifnei before Yovel. Why does it say, right, Ara Yovel? It should say, you calculate the lease determined by how many years are left until Yovel. Now, it, it works to say after Yovel also because after Yovel also tells you how many years are left until the next Yovel. But it's, it's uncomfortable. The more, the more appropriate, it seems, way of saying should have been until. Lama Amar Achar Yovel Velo Amar Ara Yovel Kishanam HaNikneim Heim Mizman HaKniya Ara Yovel Lo Masha Avru Mishnas HaYovel Adzman HaKniya That's question number one, says the Orachayim. Question number two Lama Shina HaKasav Lashano Kishihizkir Mispar Shanam Amar Tikne Utsala HaDavar Belokeach when it talks about the land, it talks about the bar, the buyer. And when it talks about the produce, the tvua, it puts it in the language of the seller. Right? So question number one is, why does it say achar, not ad? It says, tikne me'es means, you're the buyer. 
And then, at the end of the Pasuk, according to the number of, now crops, not the land, the crops, he should sell to you. Now it's putting it in the perspective of the mocher, of the seller. So why did the Pasuk all of a sudden in the middle switch from the perspective of the buyer to the perspective of the seller? Those are the Archaim's two questions. I share them with you only to create a sensitivity to the Pasuk to ask these questions. His answer is very technical. You can look at it on your own. Continuing. Next Pasuk, Yudzayin. These these words of the beginning of Pasuk Yudzayin should be very familiar to you because we actually just read it. And don't aggravate, aggrieve, what's the word scroll uses? Don't aggravate, don't aggrieve your fellow man. Have awe of God, because I am the Lord your God. Observe all of my laws, the ordinances, and do them. And if you do that, you'll be able to dwell with betach. What's bitachon? With faith or in Israel, what's bitachon? Security. You'll dwell securely on the land. Why are we repeating? Didn't we just say that a moment ago? The laws of Onah, you can't extort, you can't charge too much. How does that relate to land? We said Onah doesn't apply to Karka. Rashi says it does, not to real estate purchases, but within a lease, don't take advantage by paying little and getting a lot of crop, or by charging a lot and there's only a few years left to Yovel. So why is the Pasuk repeating it? We just said it a moment ago. Says Rashi, it's introducing something new. This ona is not the financial. Now we're introducing not being honest in business dealings. Now we're introducing ona when it comes to our language, when it comes to our words. You're not allowed to aggravate literally. Not aggravate financially, but aggravate literally. What does it mean to aggravate your fellow man? It means to mock. It means to imitate. In a, in a obnoxious way. It means to remind him or her, hey, remember when you tripped and fell on your face and everybody was watching? Hey, remember before you were a Bachuva and you used to eat pork? Hey, remember that trouble you ran into with the law? Hey, remember? That's Ona'a. Ona'a's, it's called Ona'a's Dvarim. There's Ona'a's Mamon, which is to extort with money, to charge above the... Uh, the uh, going rate, and there's Onaz Dvaram, which is to aggravate with words. You shouldn't be giving advice that's not appropriate, that's Onaz Dvaram. What are other examples, by the way? Look at the Rashbam. The Rashbam says, means don't aggravate with words. For example, Gineva's Das. I'll give you an example of Onaz Dvaram. I run into this ethical dilemma almost every time I'm in the hospital. You go to the hospital to visit A. While you're getting into the elevator, you see the wife of, or the son of, or the nephew of B. And they say, oh, you came to visit my father. That is so nice. And what do you say? See, if you say, actually, I had no idea they were in the hospital, or I would never bother to come visit your father. I'm here to bother to visit, I'm here to visit, uh, I'm here to visit so-and-so, but I guess I ran into you, now I have to go to your father also. So that's not going to be very kind. On the other hand, if you say, yeah, absolutely, I did come to visit. Oh yeah, what, what room is that again? You know? So then, to, that's Geneva's Das. You're stealing somebody's 
you're stealing somebody's knowledge. So you're deceiving somebody. So that's an ethical dilemma, by the way. It's not so clear. Geneva's das is not an ethical dilemma. You're not allowed to steal somebody's assumption. That's not an ethical dilemma. Geneva's das is prohibited. But, right, Geneva's das, where it's clear-cut, absolute Geneva's das is prohibited. But this is an ethical dilemma, because now you have a value conflict. Geneva's das, on the one hand, being dishonest with the person, deceiving them, but on the other hand, hurting their feelings. So are you allowed to be so ethical about Geneva's das at the hurt, at the cost of the other person's feelings, bless you, that the person is going to feel poorly that oh, the rabbi or this friend, they didn't come visit me. The only reason they're in my room right now is because they happen to run into my son. So how honest should you be? By the way, you have a similar ethical dilemma, which was a machlokus, between the Chafetz Chaim or Yisrael Salanter, when it comes to Lashon Hara. If you spoke Lashon Hara about someone, we know the law is that if you hurt somebody, you don't get atonement until you go and ask forgiveness. Yom Kippur is not Machaper. Yom Kippur can't atone for that mistake until you get forgiveness from the person. God says, what are you coming to me? You haven't said you're sorry yet to... You know, my two kids kill each other and then one comes to me and says, I'm really sorry how I behaved. So, well, that's nice, but you hit your sister over the head with the baseball bat. So until you work it out with her, I can't grant you forgiveness. So that's exactly what Hashem says. Until you talk to your brother, your sister, I can't grant you forgiveness. So good. So I have to go if I've hurt them. What if I spoke Lashon Hara about them and they didn't know? So now when I go and I say, well, Yom Kippur's coming, I want to clear my slate. So I'm going to go up and say, look, you don't know anything about this, but I told everybody about that thing that, you know, about you. I say, and I just want to let you know, I'm really sorry, I hope you forgive me. You know, ignorance, ignorance is bliss. A moment ago, they didn't know about it. Now, to clear my conscience, I'm going to put a dagger, I'm going to put a dagger through their heart? Is that allowed? So the Chavetz Chaim has in his Sefer, when he put out his Sefer, he says, you have to go achieve atonement from the person. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who, when he saw the Sefer, said, no, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, yeah, said, uh, couldn't give a haskama because, uh, because uh, couldn't give an approbation because he disagrees with that particular halacha. He says, you're not entitled to give, uh, you're not entitled to clear your conscience on the other person's account. They shouldn't have to go through pain so that you could say, I cleared my conscience. Too bad. You're going to have to swallow that one. Too bad. So that's a similar thing over here in the hospital. Onaz Dvarim. I'm not allowed to violate Onaz Dvarim. Geneva's Das. On the other hand, I'm going to hurt the person if I say, actually, I had no intention of visiting you, you know, but uh, what can I do? So that's another example that Rashpam says of Onaz Dvarim. By the way, which is worse, Onaz Dvarim or Onaz Mamon? Extorting a person financially or verbally? Chazal teaches verbally is worse. Why? Because money can always be restored. Money can always be restored. But a person's pain, a person's self-confidence, a person's reputation, and so on, is something which it's difficult to restore later. So the Rashbam says, uh, the second one is to teach, giving bad advice, deceiving them, and so on and so forth. So back in Rashi, Rashi says, Vim Tomar, so if you'll say, Mi Yodeya Imnes Kavanti when I gave this bad advice, who knows that I gave it on purpose? I had ill intent. You know, Geneva's Das. When I deceived somebody, maybe I didn't mean to deceive them. Lekach Nemar, says Rashi, that's why the Pasuk ends, Viyaresa Melokecha, Hayodea Machshavos Hu Yodeya. Kol davar hamasur 
the end of the Pasuk, any time the Torah is dealing with a prohibition where nobody ever could know but you, no one could know. How could someone know your true intent? We could always conjecture. But only you could know what's really happening in your heart. So when you have something where it depends on what's really happening in your heart, your motivation, the Torah ends it, Don't forget God is watching. Just when you think no one could know what's in my heart, I could get away with this, no one will know that I really planned to hurt the person with bad advice. I'll just say, oh, I thought it was good advice, I'm sorry. Know that there's always someone who hears. Know that there's always someone above you. Ayin Roa, and so on and so forth. And why? I am the Lord, your God. So, Elokechem, why is it in the plural? We just said, Fear your God. Why is it now in the plural, Elokechem? Look at the Svarno. Says, Ravavadya Svarno, Elokeakona, Velokeamocher. You think you guys are in a transaction, the buyer and the seller, but guess who you both answer to? Me. I am the Lord, your God, in plural, of both the buyer and the seller. So both of you guys behave, and both of you guys be ethical, and both of you guys be fair, and both of you guys be just. Because in the end of the day, I am the God, not just to the buyer, not just to the seller, I am the God of both, says the Sephorna. Okay. Yes. Just another question. It's probably not terribly important, but why is Lotonu plural? Why is Lotonu plural? Yeah, that's a good question. We do this all the time. Good question. Good question. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the, the Ibn Ezra, by the way, writes, while you have Altonu twice, Azhara Lamocher. The first time it said Losonu was a warning to the buyer. This time is a warning to the seller. So you have the Mephorshim all discussing why do you have Altonu twice? So Rashi says, why is it twice? The first is Onos Mamon, financial prohibition. The second is Onos Dvarm, verbal. The, uh, the uh, Ibn Ezra explains, no. The reason it's twice is once is to warn the seller and the second is to warn the buyer. The Ramban also has a discussion here, by the way. But uh, we're not going to get into it. Because we don't have time. We don't have time. Okay, let's keep going. So the Torah promises, if you observe all this and keep it, then what happens? If you are honest in your business dealings, and you're honest in your, in your relationship to the land, to real estate, to set up leases rather than transfers, do all that, you will dwell on the land with security. Says Rashi Pasuk Yitches, Lavetach means Sheba'avon Shmita Yisrael Golem. What does it mean with security? It means everything will go well. When Jews properly observe the land, the sabbatical year, then we get to merit keeping the land. And when we neglect the observance of the sabbatical year, the land vomits us out. Shenema Aztirza Haaretz Shapsoseha. Rashi's quoting the Gemara in Shabbos. The 70 years we spent in Golos Bavel, in Babylonia, between the first and second temples, was corresponding with the 70 years that they had not observed, that they had neglected Shemitah. Shemitah is punishable with exile. If you don't honor the land, then you don't merit to retain the land. Respect the land. Honor the land. Recognize the sanctity of the land, says the Torah. You'll have security. If you don't, you're going to run into all problems of having to give back, abandon, and so on and so forth, the land. Okay.
says the Svarna, what does it mean? Vishavtem Lavetach. I'm sorry, that's the next Pasuk. That's Pasuk Yates, because we'll see that again in a moment. Okay, Pasuk Yates, let's go. Continuing now. If you properly observe the Shemitah, then the land will give forth fruit, and you will, it will be plenty. And you'll dwell securely on it. What's the obvious question? The redundancy. Why is it repeating? We just told me a moment ago. You just told me that if I keep all the laws and ordinances and do everything properly, then I will dwell with security on the land. So why do you have to repeat? And the land will give its fruit, and you will be satisfied, and you'll dwell securely. You just told me that. You just told me that. So, so look at Rashi. Minas Nahar, the land will give. You don't have to worry about the land, the years, a few. Don't worry about when you're, that it's not going to produce. So the first time meant you'll dwell securely, meant you're going to be able to stay on the land. The second meant that not only will you stay on the land, but the land will provide for you what you need. You don't have to worry. You're going to eat to the point that you'll be satisfied. Says Rashi, Even within your kishkas, it's going to be a bracha. Even if you're Ashkenazi, and you have an Ashkenazi small intestine, still, it'll be lasova. Right? A lot of Ashkenazi stomachs, the food tastes good going down, and then you suffer and pay for it later. Crohn's and colitis and irritable bowel and all the Ashkenazi diseases. So here's the bracha the Torah gives. Maybe this is the Sephardim. Torah, here's the bracha. The bracha the Torah gives is that the food won't only be good going tasting it, going down, the food will also be good while you're digesting it. Af betocha me'ayim. Sifsi Chachamav, of course, asks, where in the world did Rashi get this from? It's a good word. I mean, Rashi, Rashi was Ashkenaz, right? He lived in France. That is literally, you know, uh, part of Ashkenaz. So maybe he had an Ashkenazi stomach, so he saw the biggest bracha being that not only it tastes good, but it's, you digest it well. Oh. Where did Rashi get this from now? Look at this. The verse itself said that the land is going to give forth its fruit. Why do I have to be told that it's going to be satisfying? If it's giving forth fruit in plenty, then I know I'll have enough to be satisfied. Why did the Pasuk have to say, Lasova? Lasova refers to not eating it. Lasova refers to digesting it. Okay, so that's how Sister Chacham explains how Rashi came onto that. A very important bracha indeed. Hold on one second. Um, look at the Svarno. Vishavtim Lavetach. Why did the Torah repeat Vishavtim Lavetach? You'll dwell securely. What does it mean here? So the Sforno says, the first Lavetach is, you're not going to be exiled from the land. The second Lavetach is, Don't worry that you're going to encounter a famine, that by taking a year off of working the land, you'll have nothing to eat, and what will you be forced to do? To turn to the neighbors, the non-Jews, the, the other nations of the world to buy like the story of Yosef and his brothers in Egypt. And that's going to compromise. Once you, once you have to rely on others, once you're, getting, once you're relying on aid from foreign countries, now you have to sell your soul to their will and whim. So it says the Torah, Levetach, the best security is not relying on anyone else. Produce your own energy, produce your own military needs, don't rely on anyone else's funding or aid, and then you don't have to worry about their feelings and opinions on things. So the ultimate lavetach is not to worry. 
The land will still produce what you need. You won't have to rely on foreign aid, says the Svarno. And that's the ultimate betach. That's the ultimate bitachon. The best security is getting off of foreign aid. The more you would need foreign aid, the less security you have. Says the Orachayim HaKadosh, We didn't get to anything I wanted to get to. Vishavtim Labetach. So aggravating. Vishavtim Labetach says the Orachayim, V'agam shekvar amar b'pasuk shilifnei zeh vishavtim ala aretz Labetach. Chazar lo markein lahavtiach shilo yisoviv haflagas Shevach haperis lavo aleim shodeid ulazed diktek lomar pasuk rishon vishavta mal haaretz lomar shavtach azu achimod haaretz vavtach shnei achimod peroseha ulazed nimtzu betuchem mal haaretz v'yal peroseha. You see, there's two aspects of the land that other people are going to desire. One is the land, and the other is what the land produces. The two lavetach says the orachaim are promises. One is you'll be safe and secure when it comes to the land, and the other is you'll be safe and secure when it comes to the What's it called? What the land can produce? Not the, the no, not the produce. What each each land has its mineral rights. No. Not only mineral rights. What do you call it? No. What, what is it? Each country, each land has its own. I'm forgetting. Oh, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I'll call you all to tell you what, what the word I'm what the word I'm thinking of. So what? A phone tree. So so we saw a number of different interpretations. Why is the word lavetach repeated twice? Rashi said once it's about the uh, not being exiled, and once it's about the uh, fact that you won't experience famine. The Svarno says once it's about not being exiled, once it's about not needing foreign aid. The Orchaim says once it's about the other nations not being jealous of the land, and the other it's about the other nations not being jealous about the natural resources. That's the word I was looking for. The, the country's natural resources. In other words, sometimes a foreign country could want your land, and sometimes they could want your natural resources. So the two lavetachs of the Yorachayim are the Torah is protecting once your land and once your natural resources. Um, no. No. Now the, the Rav, Rabbi Salavechik, uh, said the following, very interesting. Masalavechik relates, it's really, it's, it's further on what I wanted to talk about, but the Torah has a prohibition regarding the Gavra and the Chefza, a very brisker way of looking. The Jewish relationship to the land is a law in the land and it's a law in the Jew. There's two laws. There's a Gavra law and there's a Chefza law. There's a prohibition of Tashuvu Isha Lachuza So, each person returns to their ancestral heritage. That's a law regarding the person. And there's the land of Viha Aretz Los Mitzus, which we didn't get to, which is the prohibition of selling land in perpetuity, so that you realize that the land ultimately only belongs to God. That's a din in the land. Maybe we'll do this next year. There's a din in the Chefza, a din in the Gavra. There's a law in the person regarding the land, and there's a law in the land itself proper. But I didn't get to, but I'll leave you to think about for next year, please God, is what happens to the person who says, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? It's not like today where you say, well, you have savings, I have a 401k, I have a, a Roth IRA, I got a big freezer, I've got whatever, I got my in-laws. It's today you can't say, today whatever the plan is that people have. In those days you didn't have that planned. You literally, you ate what you killed, you ate what you grew, what you harvested. So Torah says, the entire year you're taking off, what are you going to do? 
What are you going to do? So it's very interesting to see the different Mepharshim. Ki Samru. Who are, who's asking this question? Is it a legitimate question to ask? Is it only a person who lacks faith who asks? There's a beautiful nativ on this. Who's asking this question? When you will ask, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? And then the Torah makes a promise, don't worry. In the sixth year, you'll grow enough for the sixth year, the seventh year, and the eighth year. But for you, before you get to the Torah's promise, who's asking the question? Is it a legitimate question, a fair question to ask? Or only a person who lacks faith who asks it? It's a very interesting question. We'll get to that, please God, next year. Okay, what question?